This morning we're going to offer a practice known as Big Sky Mind. And I invite you to begin opening your eyes and realizing that your awareness is wide enough to include the entire room. Sense or feel or realize that the borders of your awareness are not confined to the head but actually fill the whole space. Maintaining an open sense of the mind, close your eyes and bring that sense with you. The borders of awareness are wide. Stretch out in all directions. might want to keep some degree of your attention, some amount of your attention on the breath. Perhaps the breath has felt in the whole body, feeling this breathing body in the center of this wide open sky of awareness.
another way to establish or enhance the big sky of awareness is through the sense door of hearing. Become aware of sounds. And sense that the borders of awareness extend outward to encompass all the sounds that you hear. Let the borders of awareness reach out to touch the source of the farthest sounds you can hear. Creating a great open sky of mind. Sensing that the boundaries of awareness stretch out in all directions. 
And then let those boundaries themselves dissolve. So this great sky of mind becomes limitless, vast. And through this vast open sky of mind, all phenomena appear and disappear without leaving any stain, without leaving a trace. Thoughts come and go, floating through like clouds. Sounds appear and disappear. Sensations twinkle on and off. And this great sky of awareness accepts all things and holds on to nothing. You might want to use the breath as a touchstone, a place to put a certain small percentage of your attention. Or you might want to use the breath as a way of pumping out the big sky, moving 
the boundaries even further, realizing that the whole of this mind is breathing. Re-establish your sense of the big sky of mind. You can come back to the hearing, the sounds, the farthest sounds, extending the borders of awareness and letting them dissolve. Creating a vast expanse of mind. Empty, without its own characteristics, no personality, no age, reflecting whatever comes before it, holding on to nothing. Everything that appears liberates itself, disappears.
thoughts, sounds, sensations, all disappear on their own. You might erase the boundaries of the body so that you feel sensations not located in an arm or a back, but just twinkling off and on in space. If you feel lost or confused or spaced out, you can bring your attention in narrower to the body or to the breath. The bells you are about to hear 
will not signal the end of the meditation, but are simply another means to enhance the sense of open waves of mind.
when you hear the bell and open your eyes, see if you can bring with you into the light that sense of the big open space of mind. Did you have a good time? There's a great uh, story in the Pali Canon of uh, the Buddha teaching his son, Rahula. And he says, you know, if you take a teaspoon of salt, put it in a glass of water, and then drink it, the water's going to be very salty. You take that same teaspoon of salt and put it in the Ganges and it won't uh, have hardly any effect on the taste of the Ganges water. Not that you'd want to drink that, but... (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we have time for some discussion. Uh, Maybe a few people want to comment on that exercise, if it worked for you, if you what you noticed. I noticed not just hearing, but feeling the different bells. And I could just, it was like, and then I, the little one, it, it was just very cool. <laughs> he said he could feel the bells. Uh, he's sitting right here, of course. But <laughs> that, that it was very, it was very cool that you could you could actually feel it. Lots of energy. Lots of energy. Calm, happy, subtle kind of energy. Uh huh. Uh huh. Almost like a trunk in the head. Uh huh. Yeah. Just 
I think what you're asking is how do I let go of pleasant experiences? How do I not seek them? Welcome to the human existence. <laughs> Rick, do you want to do you have anything you want to say? <laughs> Beyond that. Well, um, you know, as, as, as you know, uh, one of the central teachings, and in many ways one of the most practical pieces of teaching, is the sequence that the Buddha drew, as atten- drew our attention to. It's described in the chain of dependent origination or the network of dependent origination, where things arise due to causes and pass away due to causes, that there's a kind of sequence in the mind that goes from contact to feeling to craving to clinging, and then a couple steps later to suffering. And in psychological terms, we would talk about (coughs) stimulus being contact, right? This thing we like, the feeling of loving kindness, this pleasant experience, a letting go, whatever it might be, a taste of a raisin, stimulus, and then, it, then there's a feeling tone of it, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, right? And then the, the question is, what happens after that? Can we, can we experience the pleasant and enjoy it while not clinging to it, not craving it? Craving is a kind of an initial movement toward it, and clinging is more elaborated and complicated and kind of sludgy. We can feel how that is. And as, as you know, I, I think as well, in terms of the fundamental practice uh, guide, probably the core practice guide um, in the early teachings of the Buddha, the mind, four foundations of mindfulness or the four places to establish mindfulness, the Buddha allocated one of those four to tracking the feeling tone of experience. It's so central. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and then what, right? And again, as you know, um, you know, he, he was trained at a time where the predominant view is that the path to awakening was to suppress the pleasant. And one of his breakthroughs was to realize that there were pleasant experiences that were wholesome. And so therefore, he developed the middle way, talked about that, where we don't, um, fight with the unpleasant, uh, and we don't cling to the pleasant. And there are appropriate responses to pleasant and unpleasant. You know, we wish others to have happiness and love, and it's okay to wish that for ourselves. Those are pleasant experiences, but they're wholesome pleasant experiences. And it's okay to pull back from unpleasant experiences, like a hot stove or pulling a child out of a busy street, you know. the key is, do we have craving in relationship to that? In psychology, it's called the hedonic tone of experience. We don't really have much control. We don't have any control in the moment of the feeling tone that's there. Over time, we can condition ourselves or train ourselves so that things that used to be uh, really unpleasant are more, more neutral. Or things that we felt were really pleasant but were actually problematic, we come to see increasingly that they're not so pleasant after all. Uh, sidebar, you know, the Buddha talks about anger as having a, uh, what's it, uh, a honeyed barb, but a poison tip. 
you know, and that initial honeyedness can feel weirdly pleasant, but it's obviously problematic. Uh, so we can do that over time and in terms of affecting the feeling tone, but where practice really lives a lot is in that little place between the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and whether we tip into craving about it or simply let it be, let it flow, you know, move on. And uh, I think uh, Sylvia Borstein talks about putting a shock absorber through equanimity. We develop a kind of shock absorber in the mind so that it's okay if it's pleasant, it's okay if it's unpleasant, um, but we don't get aggravated about it. So. And I think that's just fundamentally central. And the short version for me is, um, you know, to really, it, for me it helps to feel already unresourced so that the pleasant, we don't, have, we don't feel so desperate about it. It doesn't land on some sense of lack. There's already a prior sense of sufficiency and enoughness. And then that, that changes a lot of things. You know, when we're paradoxically through internalizing wholesome experiences, we feel less hungry for the pleasant. And it can come and it can go and it doesn't disturb us so much. So finishing, uh, you know, thinking of a phrase for equanimity, walking evenly over uneven ground. You know, the uneven ground of life is pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Can we walk evenly over that ground? And I think that's what practice is a lot about. Just also to that, um I think a lot of practice is noticing the unsuccessful strategies of the unenlightened mind. Right? Um, so in this case, you know, something pleasant comes up and the mind is like clinging to it, uh, which would be fine if that actually caused the pleasantness to continue forever, but it doesn't, right? <laughs> like it actually doesn't work, you know? <laughs> um, and then likewise, like something unpleasant, like painful comes up and the strategy of the unenlightened mind is like to hate it, you know, to push it away. Uh, to add more tension to the whole thing. So then there's the inherent unpleasantness, which we couldn't, didn't choose in the first place, but then added on to that is this uh, aversion, like tension uh, thing, which also doesn't actually help the unpleasantness to go away. You know, like if, if for example, you're sick of the rain and you're like, oh, I hate it, right? You know, like you can hate it, but it's not stopping raining because of that, right? Like it's just, it's still raining until it stops raining. <laughs> So it's like, okay, well, why add that? So the unenlightened mind doesn't get that, you know? And so it's constantly, like, wagging back and forth between these strategies. So I think just holding with compassion, just actually observing the dukkha and the unsuccessfulness of that strategy, um, sort of feeling the... It's like opening to the first noble truth and understanding that through your own experience. Uh, it, it won't stop immediately from that, but actually, like, you start to see more clearly this delusory pattern of mind, and then, you know, eventually it can start to let go. Because if you think, of like, well, why do we keep doing that? It's because we don't see that it's unsuccessful on some level. You know, we're blind to that. We're usually very focused on the object. Uh, and this is where, you know, Buddha's teaching is pointing us to look at the movement of mind. You know, we're, like, focused on the wrong thing. It's like, oh, the rain should not be there, and then I will be happy. You know, or this pleasant thing should continue, and then I'll be happy. It's like, oh, actually, it's the movement of mind that's causing the suffering. Yes. Part of the brain is it that is used in that expansive mindfulness. That's what? What part of the brain is used in this expansive mindfulness? Yeah. 
So it's probably for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no brain, no pain, right? Um, anyway, um, well, for one, almost any complex experience is going to use the whole apparatus, pretty much. And um, in particular, uh, those parts of the brain, especially from right-handed people in the right hemisphere, uh, that do sort of spatial, holistic, gestalt awareness would be really engaged there. And what's nice about that, among other uh, benefits of that kind of experience, is there's this little term called reciprocal inhibition. What it means is that uh, different parts of the brain put the brakes on each other in this very complex, dynamic, feedback way. So the right hemisphere, which tends to be more, as I said, holistic and nonverbal, verbal processing, including inner speech, you know, yappity yappity, uh, is much more on the left side for most people. So as you if you increase activation, like in a seesaw, the right side, it's going to tend to quiet that verbal processing, which can be beneficial for many reasons. Yeah. Um, well, so a couple levels to it. So uh, one reason we plan is there's a sense of deficit. So planning comes, a major source of planning is, is comes from a quality of drive broadly defined. So one way to help that quiet is to help particularly more ancient subcortical and brainstem regions of the brain recognize satisfaction or safety or connection, right? And you can see that. And so as we increasingly internalize that, there's less need to keep planning. And more and more the planning process um, feels like uh, like an engine turning, revving, turning over, but it doesn't need to because it's not in gear. And after a while, it falls away. So that would be one part. So we're talking about lower levels. And then higher levels, I mean, there's a lot of executive function in the prefrontal cortex um, that gets a lot engaged with planning. And one of the interesting things, a comment um, made to me by Andy Alinsky, who's a scholar uh, and teacher at uh, the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, he commented that the executive functions can still proceed, planning, choosing, including wholesome ways. You know, like stopping to let someone go ahead of you as you move out through the doors, right? Or, oh, remembering, better bring umbrella, you know? Uh, that executive function can proceed without identifying with it as self. But it's, we tend to be particularly caught or tricked by executive functionings. There is choosing, so we tend to presume a chooser. And it's interesting to explore choosing proceeding, deciding proceeding, planning proceeding uh, in a way that feels effective and skillful and helpful without, real, without needing to have an eye, you know, driving that particular bus. So for me, these are just kind of useful takeaways. That's the, the point for me a lot about it. Like, what's practically useful? One, you know, looking for those wholesome opportunities to let it land that needs met. Don't need to be agitated. Don't need to kick into craving gear. Also, um, recognizing that a lot of mental processing is well-trained. Neurons that fire together wire together. So those networks get really strengthened. And we kind of, that's what's one thing that's so precious about a retreat, 
it's that it gives us an opportunity to, you know, nothing is as, is as powerful as nothing, right, in a way. It, and it creates a space where we can explore ways of being that are not so pre- predominant in our culture and uh, therefore need a little help. And then the other practical takeaway is not to identify so much with executive processing. Realize it can happen just fine without needing to make an eye out of it. Let's say one more thing about that in the practice standpoint also that um, becoming comfortable with not knowing is a good antidote to that. Yeah. Because the truth is that um, a lot of the stuff, you know, I, I think behind a lot of the anxiety and the planning is anxiety and the anxiety is from like not actually knowing how things are going to turn out. And so then the mind is like trying to play out all the 10,000 possibilities and, you know, like get some illusory sense of a handle on how things are going to go. <laughs> but it's really a total illusion, you know, like we don't know. Uh, so there's something about actually being able to rest in this mystery of don't know with some grace and comfort that is very helpful. Sounds sweet. <laughs> well, that I, that you brought it up. Uh, feel free to use that practice. You know, whenever, uh, whenever you wish. It's uh, it's wonderful, and and to be able to. When you taste a little bit of the freedom that is probably happening, maybe occasionally now. Uh, we're four days and five days into the retreat. Uh, let yourself really taste it as, as we've talked about. You know, let it really reverberate. Because uh, it's motivation to keep you practicing. What's it like when there's no self in there and, it, and it's kind of empty? And uh, The Buddha says that's the highest happiness. When you touch it, feel it, remember it know it. So, uh, are we done? Announcements? Yeah, we have some announcements. We have a few announcements. We'll have, we're, by the way, we're going to have uh, a lot of discussion time uh, coming up in the next couple days. So, uh, 